Welcome back to Muse to the Pharaoh. I am your host, Darling Nisi. We're back with the next episode in our series, Planting Flags in the Funk. While most of the episodes of Muse include a Black perspective on Prince, as I myself am a Black woman, this particular series has a laser focus on this perspective. We've had episodes talking to women who are day one Prince fans who watched him evolve across his career, an episode on how Prince himself navigated his career as a black man, and in our last episode in this particular series, we talked about how racism shows up in his fandom. In this episode, we discuss Prince, black exceptionalism, and the myth of the magical Negro. This will be a two-part discussion, and I encourage you all to listen with an open mind and an open heart, as you may find some of what is talked about challenging to hear. As always, it's my aim to encourage those who keep up with me to interrogate their own biases and push through to overcome them. I hope you find the time to sit with this episode to continue the process of doing just that. have a panel of esteemed guests. <laughs> One person who's been with us before, uh, Miss Erica Thompson. How are you? Hello, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me back. And then we have a new guest, Miss Camila Cummings. Hi, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be joining this conversation in your podcast. Our third guest today, Miss Tanya Pendleton. It's wonderful to be here. Awesome. So because we have too many people on our podcast today, I have to do my intro, how you got interested in Prince in the first place. And we'll start with Tanya. You know, I wish I had a much more clear answer to this. I believe it was because he came out with, I want to be a lover and something you know, that's that's probably the first song that I remember really being played widely on the radio. And because I was fortunate enough to grow up in New York City and Frankie Crocker, who was an iconic DJ of the time on New York radio, played such a wide variety of music. I think that was just one of the songs that he introduced me to. And then somehow, some way, I just found connection in this little man from Minneapolis and his music. And it just, I, I think that's when I probably would pinpoint a time. But, you know, it just kind of feels like once he hit the scene, he was just in the in the ether somehow and all around me. And I don't even I, I don't even know if I can articulate exactly why or how, but that would probably be the, the time or the moment that I would pinpoint as the origin song or moments. OK, how about you, Camila? It's so funny, uh, Tanya, to hear you speak because uh, I knew this was a question Kanisa asked on this podcast. And I was talking to my sister, uh, who's also a Prince fan. We've gone on this journey together, uh, my twin sister, Cabria, and I. And we were really trying to figure out, like, when we first became Prince fans, because like you said, Tanya, he's just been in the ether. He has been such a part of my experience. And so we actually were doing research. We were remembering when they were advertising 
advertising the triple threat tour on radio here and Cabri is like well I know I remember the Christmas tree was up and the and so we looked and we saw that he did three dates on that tour in Chicago like December 9th 10th and 11th of 1982 and so we because we're like, wow, so we were like seven years old <laughs> and hardcore Prince fans because we wanted so desperately to go, but there was no way on earth our parents were going to take seven-year-olds to the Triple Threat Tour. So we were even thinking back, if that was 82, I remember, you know, and I was seven then, so I was like, gosh, you know, Controversy was the album before that. I remember Controversy being played on the radio all the time here in Chicago. Like Tanya, we had the benefit of radio stations that kind of played everything so black music was so boundless that we heard Prince and I honestly I wish like Tanya I had a better answer but I can't pinpoint pinpoint a moment I just remember seeing him and thinking oh my goodness you know (laughs) with the videos but then hearing him and there was just something you know, amazing about him that I connected to. It wasn't magic. We'll get to that later. But there was something that I saw and connected to. And he's just been part of my journey ever since. Okay, let's get started. No one thinks I have a lie. Because you never see it. just here for your convenience. I play back up to the characters with dimensional backstories. But you don't know me. You don't know me. I always know exactly what to say. It's a skill to be invisible, yet electric company. As I mentioned earlier, today we want to talk about the term magical Negro, or what does it mean when we apply that type of term to a black person? Where does it come from? And how do we feel about it as black people ourselves? So the first question I want to ask you all is when you hear magical Negro, what comes to mind for you? And we'll start with Erica. Yeah, so it was interesting thinking about this question because I think... um, I probably didn't become acquainted with that term until I was an adult. And I don't even remember when, but I think growing up as a young person, you get so used to watching movies that are predominantly white or like reading books or watching TV with mostly white characters. And then you have that sole black character that advances the white person's story. (laughs) So you kind of get used to that. But then as you get older, you realize what that is all about. So when I hear that term, then I go back to those movies I watched, like The Green Mile, 
the adaptation of the book, uh, Michael Clark Duncan's character or the Oracle and the Matrix. And um, again, so when I hear that term, I think of those characters and they possess some sort of powers or insight um, that, again, advances the protagonist's story, but they're not like fully fleshed out um, human characters. So that's what I think about. Okay, how about you, Tanya? Well, I want to say that Prince was definitely a magical Negro. (laughs) But maybe not in the way uh, that we generally think of one. Um, I think, as Erica said, this magical Negro trope that a Black character comes in and advances the narrative for the white character and is possessed of these supernatural, otherworldly qualities, but only in service of this white character's awakening or improvement or, you know, advancing their love affair, whatever it is. And certainly Hollywood has made a killing over the years in uh, those kinds of characters that are, you know, very, I, I don't know if disrespectful is too harsh a term, but they're really kind of disrespectful of uh, the Black character's existence because generally they're just in the plot to drive the white character and the Black character has no, uh, really no usage except for that. So you never know anything about who they are, what they're about. And, and they're multiple movies. Uh, Erica certainly mentioned The Green Mile. And I think of uh, the golf movie that Will Smith was in. That I can never remember the name of that movie, but um, probably because I blanked out of that <laughs> that whole storyline. But um, definitely someone who is viewed as sort of uh, someone... A a character that is simply there to advance a white person's evolution, growth, uh, finances, love, and and really has no backstory or anything that is specific to them other than helping this character along. All right. Um, Camila? I, you know, I really love what Erica and Tanya said, uh, and I agree 100%. So I co-signed that. And I, another thing I thought about with this, and I guess this would be like if you were looking in the dictionary, like the second <laughs> definition of the magical Negro. I was thinking about it within the context of Black exceptionalism, and this idea that. Black people are kind of exist on this rudimentary level and then from somewhere just springs this magically gifted, exceptional Negro who is unlike the others or is so atypical of the rest that they stand out. And there's this kind of idea that centers whiteness that says they're so magical and they're so great, they've got to kind of escape the confines of blackness and kind of be brought into some fold of whiteness, you know, to really reach their uh, uh, magical Negro potential, (laughs) if you will. So I I see both of those kind of playing out, especially in the narrative of Prince in some of those movies. I think it was something like The Legend of Bagger Vance or Badger Vance or something like that, the movie. I haven't seen any of the movies you guys mentioned, just in full disclosure, because of the kind of magical Negro uh, trope. Uh, And so it's interesting what Erica said about the movies growing up, because for me, you know, I watched my safe space or kind of 
films were like black exploitation films. And so I um, that is where I kind of escaped this long running repeated trope of the magical Negro. And so if it's not a magical Negro advancing a white narrative, it's this idea of the magical Negro who needs the white person to kind of help them achieve greatness. And so we see that in, in the way Dr. Shirley was kind of portrayed in, in the Green Book or movies like The Blind Side, where there's this great black, you know, magic that just needs a white hand to kind of lead it into that greatness. So I see that as well as uh, the definitions that uh, Tanya and Erica gave. Yeah, I, I definitely hear both sides of that. Um, I know we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but for me, Magical Nero kind of depersonalizes the person themselves, like it kind of erases the work that they did to be able to get to whatever status they had. And then it, of my own projection, because I grew up in predominantly white areas, I was always <clears throat> the one black friend who's like, oh, but you're different or you're not like the others or all this other stuff that was attributed to me that was cool or whatever, because they didn't understand that I was just being regular black culture things. And I, I think that happens with Prince a lot because I've been part of conversations where they'll say, oh, Prince came up with the word hella, not knowing that it was from the culture of Oakland or just these different songs like um, Electric Man. Everyone's like, oh, that's so sexy and that's amazing, not knowing it's a Muddy Waters cover. Or when he's doing covers of other people's work, they're like, oh, Prince, this is new. I've never heard this before, not knowing that he's um, pulling something from his own past, from his old culture and letting it, everyone else know about it, whether it's in a mashup or different things like that. But one thing, and I... This was some feedback, again, that we had from a previous podcast. They were like, well, you're talking about how Prince um, or how black people are specific and they're not like everyone else. They're not a monolith. But also you ask the question of what are your favorite black moments? Like there's a stereotype and there's culture. So the question I want to talk about next, um, what is the, how would you differentiate between something that is a stereotype and a cultural characteristic? And, and we'll start with Camila. That's interesting. I think when I think of stereotypes, I, I really think of more of a negative connotation and, you know, from the standpoint of maybe something that's a false or exaggerated depiction of a group of people. Um, and I think with stereotypes, they serve the purpose of the stereotyper the person who's stereotyping. So uh, these negative or exaggerated generalizations are projected upon others because they in some way serve a purpose or intention of the person doing the stereotyping. Um, you asked about uh, cultural characteristics. That I think maybe is less about exaggeration or serving someone else's need and more, I guess, about actual behaviors or, or ways of being um, or beliefs that are shared within a group across different kind of spectrums and spaces maybe uh, would be my best stab at that. Um, that. I think that's kind of how I would look at it. One, having the negative connotation that serves the person who is projecting the stereotype and the other being more of a realization of common commonalities, common um, behaviors, beliefs uh, that are shared across the group. So that's my best stab at it. Okay. How about you, Tanya? 
You know, it, it, it makes me think there was a, a photo shared on social media not too long ago of a black man, older black man surrounded by a bunch of kids and all the kids were eating watermelon. And people, whoever posted it initially, posted it and said, what does this picture make you, what does, what does this picture look like to you? And for so many people, they were like, it looks like pop pop and some kids on a Saturday afternoon eating a snack or a refreshment. So when I think of the difference between culture and stereotype, I think of the fact that there are people who would look at that and see it as a stereotype. And there are other people that look at that and see that as an absolutely normal thing and who have great memories of those kinds of moments. I think a stereotype is more the idea that everyone in a group does something and in, ter- in terms of it being differentiated from something cultural, which means many of us in the group may do something or we may associate part- some activity or some language or some other signifiers that we consider to be part of the group um, as culture. And the stereotype is that everybody does that. Everybody in that group does that thing. So I think that's the difference. And as as it relates to that photo, how people view something that certain groups see as normal and not as uh, not as something to be ashamed of or something to be, um, you know, something that people would make fun of or, or, or see in a negative light. So I think that that's the difference. Okay. Um, what do you think, Erica? Yeah, um, I agree with what both uh, Tanya and Camila said. And I think it, it depends on who is saying it, whom they're saying it to, and why they're saying it. So I kind of try to take it on a case-by-case basis. And, you know, uh, to Camila's point about negative and positive stereotypes, I think negative stereotypes are easier to kind of parse out. So when you hear like black people are lazy or unintelligent or sexual predators or sexually devious or have superhuman strength on and on and on, I think those are easy to dismiss. Um, But then when you get into positive stereotypes, like I was thinking of an example and, you know, I thought, okay, I'll talk about like black people have rhythm. Right. So that's like seen as a positive stereotype. And, you know, it's true (laughs) to an extent um, when we think about how dance and drumming and movement are important to our culture. And I think it's comfortable when we talk about it amongst ourselves, but it can become harmful when we're using it as a measuring stick for blackness, like within our own community. But then also it becomes harmful and stereotypical when white people use it to minimize black people. So it's like that's how you get, well, you know, black people are only good for entertaining. (laughs) Or if we think about in the case of Prince, um, you know, Prince plays music that is rhythmic and doesn't have melody or, you know, you need the influence of white band members to bring melody to his music. I hear that a lot. And also, if we think about somebody like Duke Ellington, it's like, oh, he's finally elevating jazz music with orchestration because it's closer to a European sound. So I think it's like very complicated and it just depends on a case by case basis. Yeah. And that kind of leads me into my next question. Um, Identity politics are complicated and how people identify can be a source of collective strength as well as a prescriptive list of prescriptive expectations. 
How do you think the topic of identity politics and public appeal a kind of um, comes into play when we're talking about Prince, um, when we're talking about his magic or how he was different or how he fits within constraints of what people think black people should do or what they should be? And um, we'll, we'll start with we'll start with Erica. OK, yes, this is a very complex topic, and I hope I'm going to answer your question. I don't know. I might I think my response might present more questions. But when I think about identity politics and Prince, I just think he's a dream subject for identity politics because he's so multifaceted. And um, I think also <sighs> it's easy for people to project things on him. So, you know, he's black, so we can use him to talk about race. Um, he plays around with gender presentation and expectations. So we can talk, use him to talk about gender identity. Um, some scholars can use him to talk about the notion of queerness apart from sexual preference. Uh, Prince talks about women a lot. He employs a lot of women. So we can use him to talk about feminism. And because of his religion and some of his other messages about family, we can even use him to talk about conservative values. So that's why you have a group of like Trump supporters who are also <laughs> Prince fans, which is always interesting to me. And I always tell them he supported Black Lives Matter to make them mad, but that's another subject. So I think that's what makes Prince so fascinating. And um, it's, it's, so it's fascinating scholarship and I welcome it, but it's dangerous because, like I said, people can really project anything on him. <laughs> OK, um, what do you think, Camila? I'm sorry, I'm recovering from the Prince Trump supporter. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I a second, though, I do have several Prince after show experience that would lead me to believe believe that they were there even before Trump <laughs> took office, uh, which is another conversation about racialized incidents at Prince events. Um, but I would say, uh, I think what Erica said is spot on. That's why I think this discourse on Prince is so important. He's just given us, like Erica said, he's a dream subject. He's given us so much to explore in a way that no artist ever has, to me, no public figure ever has, and just the different areas that we can really begin to kind of explore and examine identity, politics, and culture, and society through the life and work of this one amazing Black uh, artist. Uh, for me, I think identity politics, it's such an interesting question. I think it's a concept that's gained so much traction in the last maybe few years. And I kind of struggle myself with it at times, just really kind of thinking about it. Uh, so I'll just try to give a succinct kind of um, answer uh, to relate it to Prince when I think about Prince and identity politics, it's hard to ignore where the centering of whiteness starts to play a part in the identity politics related to Prince. Uh, and so myself, as when I think of my black female identity in Prince, I think about how important it is to really um, kind of make sure that 
the work and contributions of black women to his life and art and his acknowledgement of our value is amplified because I want that identity noted as part of this unparalleled um, legacy. And so when I think of it, I come to the fray with that in mind, like, OK, this was a black man who loved and supported black women because black women were part of his identity. And that is part of the identity that drew me to him, that had me go to 32 Prince concerts <laughs> and spend countless amounts of money and time and energy and emotion on this man. And if I did not see myself positively depicted and reflected and integrated into his work, I wouldn't have done that because I've never seen any other artist do that. So when I think of my own selfish interest in identity politics and prints, there is that part of it wanting to make sure that the black female identity is recognized as, as part of um, his work. So that's kind of my indirect but concise <laughs> response to that question. Okay, Tanya. I mean, I think is I don't give a you know what an identity because I feel like Prince would he he just epitomized that. He epitomized being somebody who did not give a blank about what he wore, how he looked. I mean, it, obviously in the sense that he was always fly and fabulous, but I think that he seamlessly navigated varying identities. And that is why you have so many different kinds of people who relate to him in one way or another. Mm -hmm. You can always project whatever it is that you want onto him as an identity, whether, you know, even as he posed the question on controversy, am I black or white? Am I straight or gay? And he was always kind of vague in some respects about certain aspects and answers, you know? So I feel like the identity, you know, his main identity was to be free, to be loosened from restrictions. Or as Eddie Murphy once said about Prince, he was a free MF And that freedom in not having to be boxed into any particular specific identity, I think is what just made him so amazing. And also that you would go to those concerts as Camila talked about, and you would see people from, as we've just said, as Erica mentioned, Trump supporters to diehard, probably black power nationalists and everything (laughs) in between, because everybody was able to pull from some aspect of that, of the persona that Prince put out into the world because he was just so, he was just being himself in full force all the time. And whatever you were going to say, you got to do this to be a man. You got to do this to be a black man. You got to do this to be a music musician. You got to play the music like this. You got to lead a band that looks like this or does this or whatever. He was just going to go through and knock down all of those preconceived notions. And that in, uh, that's, that's where he, he stood in the culture and why he got respect from so many different kinds of people, and particularly in the Black community, where we have sometimes some restrictive notions of what it is to be Black and to be African-American. And I think given also the times that he was in where people were 
just not as boxed in by those identities. So he was able to move more freely than he might have in the area of social media. But that's he, his, his, his freedom, his sense of self is what I think really helped him be acceptable and accessible to so many different kinds of African-Americans. Yeah, I just want to co-sign what Tanya said about the, you know, I don't give a identity. Um, I, I think also it's important to talk about how Prince was playing with contradictions, too. Um, so not only was he navigating a racist system, which which is why he made some of the decisions that he made, but he also liked kind of like that mystery and that drama a little bit. Um, so I think if you don't understand the culture or if you don't understand what he was trying to do, you kind of take everything he does at face value and that can be dangerous as well. So it's like, I can see how some people are like, well, he is magical though, (laughs) because he really loved to play up that mystery and he loved illusion, like even just like throwing his guitar in the air. Right. And also he didn't want us to dig too much into his past. So it really does seem like in a way, oh, he just came out of nowhere when we know that he was rooted in in a black musical community, but he didn't he didn't want to talk about that when he became famous because he wanted you to focus on the music. And also there weren't a lot of people who documented that type of black history. I mean, I see that here in Columbus, Ohio, as a reporter, um, you know, I have, we have, we all have to try to go back and document our history because it was not done as it was happening. And um, so, yeah, just to talk about, you know, him presenting himself as racially ambiguous or even shaving a couple years off his age. I mean, all of this was done to navigate a racist music industry um, so he wouldn't be trapped in a certain box. So I think when you don't have that context, people become confused. Um, So I just wanted to add that in. Can I add also that in the 80s, I think it's really important to consider that there were a multitude of art. Well, I'm not even going to say multitude. I'm going to say there were really three towering artists in that era. I think Prince, Michael Jackson, and Madonna, I got to give her some credit as being the envelope pusher, in Prince's words, um, that she was as well in terms of female sexuality and, and switching identities and changing roles and all those things. But Michael Jackson, Prince, Whitney, to a certain degree, had to exist in a time when Black artists were segregated, uh, segregated on radio, segregated in the music industry and put in these varying boxes. So Prince and Michael come out and they're they're very important in the establishment of MTV and that particular era of music. But initially, you got to remember that this was a time when MTV could say, we don't play Black artists on this network. And that was okay. That was really okay. Like there were not riots in the streets saying this is so ridiculous and segregated and crazy. And that Prince and Michael in particular busted through that, that, you know, for, for whites only door of MTV because their music was so stellar, but also because they represented certain things to people in that era, whether it was this, first of all, their music, obviously, the music, the creativity, the things that they were doing, but certainly also representing certain 
certain, uh, uh, the, the, uh, a dichotomy of blackness to a certain degree. So Michael, more polished, coming out of a, a group that so many African-American young women grew up with. Like, I just wish there would be a Jackson's documentary because what the Jacksons meant to young African-American women has somehow just been lost in the annals of music history. And I, and I just don't understand it because they were the Beatles to young African-American girls and people grew up with that. And then here Prince comes along and he's different and he's doing rock and he's doing black music at first and he's doing R&B and then he's doing all these different things. And he's allowed to uh, not even allowed his, his talent and his music in the community that shapes around him, shapes that era and moves him from a black artist, basically. And similarly with Michael and similar, similarly, but a little differently with Whitney, um, shapes them into these crossover pop culture phenomenons that people of all backgrounds go along with. But Michael and Prince both centered in the black community initially and then moved past that to a certain degree. Not so much, I don't believe, in a in a in a transcension transcension is that a word? <laughs> to transcend race, but to make the music of Black people more accessible and allow for what was coming next, which is the rise of hip hop to come in and entrepreneurship and people taking more control of their business. And that Michael and Prince really were key in making those kinds of things happen. Okay, Camila. Um, First, I want to say this is why it's so wonderful to have black women discussing Prince, because this has been rich. Um, I just want to add add to some of um, what both Tanya and Erica said really quickly, because I had um, the Beautiful Ones book nearby, because I think it's so important in this discussion, I think as as brief as it is, it's so rich and full of so much about Prince that really rebukes a lot of this white-centered narrative that we see in this magical Negro concoction. Uh, And so to what Erica said, though, about mystery, I was looking where he said, Prince said, mystery is a word for a reason. And then Dan Pippenbring said, Prince said, mystery is a word for a reason. It has a purpose. And then Dan Pippenbring added in that the right book could add new layers to his mystery, Prince thought, even as it stripped away others. And I think that's so important because when we talk about this idea of the magical Negro and black exceptionalism, what this book does um, is, like I said, it rebukes that, it counters that narrative because we see that Prince was most certainly black out of a black neighborhood like the Jacksons, as uh, Tanya mentioned in that, whereas there's this book I've been reading called Black in the Middle and it's about blacks in the Midwest. And there's this one essay that this brother wrote from Peoria, Illinois, where Richard Pryor comes from. And he talks about how Richard Pryor says that, you know, people think that there's kind of nothing in the black community, but that he always drew from those communities because those people know something. And I think about Prince and how I related to Prince, because even though I grew up in a white community, my grandparents lived in a black community. So my weekends and summers were spent in the black community. And so being from the Midwest, being from Chicago, one of the places like Detroit that early on really took to Prince because 
we saw him as this kind of avatar of the boundlessness of blackness, that there were no restrictions. And a lot of black Midwesterners, we knew that. It's like, yeah, we were listening to rock, but we were also listening to funk. And yeah, we were reading the Black Panthers while we listened to Led Zeppelin. And we knew Led Zeppelin got their influence from Willie Dixon. So when we saw Prince, we saw the convergence of all these things in one. And there was, again, this idea that he represented this audacity of blackness, this black rebel that we saw so much of in the Midwest, where it's like, yeah, you're not going to limit me. I'm not going to be restricted by this imposition of racism that you want to impose on me. But in that, there's still the idea that for white people to come to the party, they've got to connect some way. So um, or it has to fit into the narrative of, of, of white supremacy. So for Michael Jackson to kind of get his inroad into MTV, he was kind of asexual. Prince was racially ambiguous. So in both ways, they're having to travel this path of um, white fragility. What makes white people comfortable enough to pay attention to you. And so if it's Whitney being stripped of her New Jersey roots to be presented as a way that we later found really wasn't who she was, or Michael being a sexual prince being racially ambiguous, it's all these things that once again are responding to white fragility. And the last thing I want to just add to this, because I'll st- I'll go on a rant, <laughs> but the last thing I wanted to add was that what Tanya said about MTV was even important because these artists, Whitney's a little bit different, but Michael coming from the Jacksons, Prince just coming out of nowhere. He We didn't grow up with Prince. He came out of nowhere, you know, and they really cemented their foundation in the Black community like Black artists had to before they could cross over. But when we come back to this idea idea of the magical Negro and black exceptionalism, I always think how interesting it is that Prince and Michael, two indisputable, indisputably, two of the greatest artists ever, had to be the ones to cross, to break the color line for MTV, whereas Duran Duran and Kaja Gugu and any random white British one-hit wonder had because of the ideology of whiteness and white supremacy, they could get that access to the MTV audiences that Prince had to be five albums in to get, that Michael Jackson had to, this is after Off the Wall with Thriller, this is after all of his work with the Jackson Five, like they're rooted, established, and that was that racism and inequity that Prince was aware of so early on when he played, you know, what Greg Tate called those shade games to try to make it into the music industry. So, I think there's so much of that going on that when we look at Prince in particular in identity, especially because as his career progressed, he became so much more outspoken about his blackness and his connection to the black community. And we saw it in his work that, again, it's just such a rich conversation when we think about identity, politics and Prince, because ultimately, as Tanya and Erica said, the main thing he was searching and fighting for was just freedom, the freedom to be all that blackness is. And that, again, to me, is boundless. So that was just all I wanted to add. No, it's like I we could go on this because I was thinking about, especially in the 90s, because uh, the other day I had retweeted uh, an ad from the Glam Slam. 
And at the top of it was Ice-T. Ice-T was performing there. And I know I've seen, you know, uh, videos of Tupac supporting me at the LA Glam Slam. Like, Teach Arnold was on there as a guest. It's just like, there's this whole part where, and I've heard all types of people say, well, you know, the music wasn't as good in the 90s, 95, 90 to 90, 93, 95, which I disagree with. It, it, to me, it just kind of shifted back to R&B and funk more than it was in the 80s. But I always had this idea, I'm like, where in the 80s where you had the revolution and like the pre-revolution and all those folks, there was a proximity to whiteness and the acceptance of whiteness that was there that was just not there really for the rest of his career until Third Eye Girl, right, um, 2014. And I'm always wondering, like in the 90s, is it, because earlier we said the identity politics is important. It's important for me to see myself in something to be able to relate to it. And it kind of frustrates me sometimes when people think about like the Purple Rain revolution years and they're like, I like it then. I can see myself then. I like the music. I'm a fan of Prince music. But when the music is still the same and still as good, but you can't see yourself there besides Tommy Barbarella, then you can't relate to it as much more. And I'm like, but did you listen? Because a lot of people are like, well, I just didn't listen to it as much or I, it just didn't appeal to me. And that's fine. But I always wondered how much that that identity part not being there made a difference in how you were able to listen or be driven to pay attention to the music. And even as people were like, oh, well, you know, later he started to do more black things and they're thinking more about, you know, his philanthropy and stuff like that. But it's also supportive artists like Tupac being on your stage is a type of endorsement. So it's Ice-T. So it's like all these straight up or rap groups or R&B groups or shy being NPG magazine, like all these stuff that hasn't really been documented in the way that the white um, proximity stuff has been. And there's just so much to dig into that you can find every day by just going back to look through things. Cause I was like, I, when I was looking through the NPG book and I saw a whole feature on shy, I was like, why has no one talked about this? This is a big deal. If I could ever find love, Garfield was my husband when I was like five. <laughs> so I, I think that's, that's something that, I, I mean, as black scholars, I don't necessarily call myself that. I'm just like a person who likes to Google a lot. But there's there's a lot to surface um, in stuff that just hasn't been documented at all. But the next question that kind of speaks to this is, do you guys think that Prince successfully transcended racial bias? Or because the thing that I am always unsure about this is because, because again, with the identity politics part and it, it bothers me sometimes, and this is a whole separate conversation, when people see Prince and they think, oh, he's so sexy, and all of his persona of what they know about rather than his music. It's like, are you paying attention to him as an artist, as a musician, and his music? Or are you paying attention to him because of what he represents to you, his persona, his public image, but not necessarily the music? And I'm not sure that it counts as transcending racial bias if you see Prince and you're thinking, oh, he's so sexy and all this other stuff and all this other stuff because of the Mandingo trope, you know, but not so much about his actual work. So question to you guys, anyone can answer. Um, do you think he successfully transcended racial bias? Um, I'll jump in and say absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> I was I went I looked up a quote before this podcast. Um, it was a 1997 interview with Jim Walsh in the Saint Pioneer Press, where Prince said, "The state of race relations affects me more than ever now that I run my own affairs." So if you just think about his whole battle with Warner Brothers after the Purple Rain um, fame. No. <laughs> um, but I think people get confused, like you said, be, because of the image or because he has a certain amount of money. 
or status or um, a certain amount of white fans or unity messages in his music. Um, But I mean, if you just think about prominent black professors or celebrities who get the police called on them when they're trying to enter their own homes. (laughs) And today in 2020, we're still talking about the lack of black ownership in the music industry. So I think it's, I mean, it's clearly no is the answer. Mr. Bolden, I'm sure you still meet the uh, remark that um, what are the Negroes, why aren't they optimistic? Um, And again, I apologize and preface this by the phrase the Negroes because it lumps together an awful lot of people, um, you and um, Floyd McKissick and um, Adam Clayton Powell and Hattie McDaniel and Jackie Robinson, and uh, it's impossible, I suppose, to eat. But for want of a better phrase, if you'll allow me, uh, they say, but it's getting so much better. There are Negro mayors. There's Negroes in all, all of sports. Uh, there are Negroes in, in politics. There, uh, uh, they're even courted the ultimate accolade of being in television commercials now. And, um, I'm glad you're smiling. Uh, is it at once getting much better and still hopeless? Now, if Negroes you know, don't seem to be very optimistic, it's not because they suddenly all changed from happy, shift, you know, shiftless, dancing darkies down on the levee, picking all that cotton and singing praises to the master. Mm-hmm. They've not changed at all. They never were optimistic. All one's got to do is listen to Swing Low Sweet Chariot and ask yourself what that song's about. Or try to li- really listen to what Ray Charles is really telling you. We have lived under these intolerable conditions for how many years? Nearly 400 years. We have evolved a certain kind of style to meet it. And a lot of that has been involved with the lies we had to tell to you. And uh, the lies we had to tell to you, this compounds that is asked to you believe because you wanted to believe it. And the word Negro in this country is, it really is designed finally to disguise the fact that one is talking about another man, a man like you, who wants what you want. And insofar as the American Republic wants to think there has been progress, they overlook one very simple thing. I don't want to be given anything by you. I just want you to leave me alone so I can do it myself. And it also overlooks another very important thing. Perhaps I don't think that this republic is a summit of human civilization. Perhaps I don't want to become like Ronald Reagan or like the president of General Motors. Perhaps I have another sense of life, which in fact my situation here has forced me to trust. And perhaps I know more about you and your institutions than you know about me. And perhaps I have a judgment on them. Perhaps I don't want what you think I want. And that there's nothing you can give me. Perhaps there is something that I can give you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I also think, I mean, we, we just kind of talked about the whole notion of crossing over um, a, as pop artists. And it still, it still affects artists today. Like when I think about Beyonce, I always think about her on Pierce Morgan years and years ago when she's kind of talking about you know, kind of a post-racial existence or people don't really think about my race now and all of this. But now, you know, she's it, she's totally different. You know, she's able to kind of express her blackness and, and elevate other black artists. And she's at a point where she's not worried about people like not looking at her blackness, but she had she had to get there. Like artists can't just come out and be fully black and, you know, be mainstream icons. And it's just, 
it's just so unfortunate because Black people should be able to be fully who they are. But when you're navigating, again, racist industries, it's like this whole journey that you have to go through to get to a certain point. So like by the time he gets to, to the 90s, like you were saying, he can have all of these artists and he can do all of these things. But he was not able to do that um, in the early 80s. Uh, I think it's. I think that's a yes and a no. Um, you know, it was really enlightening to me after he passed to find out that there were Prince fans that were racist. I really just had no idea, but that follows along with, um, I'm a big sports fan, so I love the NFL. Um, I've at one point was really into the NBA and covered it actually as a, a journalist as well. And it's the same question that I posed one day on Twitter, which is how can you be fans of black people who play sports and be fans of these teams that require black talent in order to be successful, but you are racist? How do you do that trick in your mind? You can love black culture and not like black people. I mean, like you, you can like, like black people from afar. You can objectify black people as to being something that is magical and illusory. There's a moment in Do the Right Thing where the character Mookie, as played by Spike Lee, is talking with Pino, played by John Turturro. Can I talk to you for a second? He asked him a question about his favorite black pop figures. Pino, who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favorite rock star? Prince. He says, you like Prince. And the guy's defensive at first because he knows where Mookie is leading to. You're Prince Ross. Bruce. Prince. Bruce. Pino, all you ever talk about is nigga this and nigga that. And all your favorite people are so-called niggas. It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince. I'm not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm... I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's, it's different. It's different. Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. And that's a great scene because it answers the question about why people are so fascinated with black culture, but they they say they don't necessarily like black people. It's a psychological disconnect. Um, you know, there's so much conversation now around politics, quote unquote, in sports, because people are proclaiming that Black Lives Matter. I mean, is that political or is that just an expression of humanity? So as it relates to Prince, it's kind of the same thing. There are people who only like Prince through the Purple Rain, Dirty Mind, more rock and roll revolution, period. And the ones who took off in the 90s when he started writing Slave on his face and when his music got funkier and his band got blacker and he, you know, started hanging around rappers and trying out rap and those kinds of things. And, you know, it was all of a sudden the music is not great anymore. And he's complaining about, you know, when you think of Prince's fight with Warner Brothers, you think of somebody who spent 22 of 24 hours in the studio with this prodigious output but who did not have final control over his own work. And think of any other industry where that is the truth. I mean, to not have your 
not have the ability to. So when you don't own your masters, as he always advocated, um, I'm sure many people know what that means by now. But it it means that the record label can go in there and change your music, throw on house music, hip hop mixes, do anything they want, altered in any way because they own that work. And him fighting to control his output. And, you know, even in the things that people disagreed with him vociferously, why did he put this out? Why did he do this? Well, I always say because he's a black man and he wanted to do what he wanted to do with his own work. Period. Right. There's such a history of exploitation in the music industry and in the sports industry and so many racial politics around it. So, yes, there are people who connected to Prince because he made music they loved and connected to him as a black or in some cases, at least half black. because (laughs) So many people believed he was biracial. They connected to him in this way through the music and through the persona and everything else around him. And then you have the people who just, they miss the point somehow that he was expressing himself through black idioms. Rock and roll is a black music genre that somehow now people believe is white. (laughs) Um, You know, to disconnect Prince from his history, from his family history. And don't get me wrong, Prince was certainly comfortable with whiteness. He grew up in Minneapolis. You know, you're a black man. You're growing up there. He was, I believe, at some point uh, bussed out to a school like so many people of that era for, quote unquote, better education. So he was comfortable with that. And it came up in his work and he worked with white people. And I don't think he had any issues in that sense. But Certainly, he understood and recognized himself in his place as a black man in the world. And and how could you not when you are working through an industry that has been consistently exploitative of black talent and still is to this day? And what we see with what's going on with the estate and the narrative being presented that tells you that although... Yes, there are people. He transcended race in the way that there were some people who connected to his music as a black artist that may not have connected to other quote unquote black artists um, that they didn't perceive as magical, (laughs) maybe to return back to that word and that concept, um, or just connected to the music because he was such a multi genre musician. Um, But the ones who connected to the music but didn't connect to him as a black man means that he didn't completely transcended because they needed him to be, as Camila said, they needed him to have some aspect of whiteness in order for him to truly be palatable to them as a artist overall. Mm. Mm. I'm over here in the amen corner. Uh, (laughs) It's all, you know, it's so true. And again, you know, to uh, one of the things I think, yeah, Tanya, you said, was that since Prince's passing was kind of your first realization that there was racism in the Prince fandom. And I, you know, I don't want to derail the conversation, um, but I think I first recognized the racism in the Prince fandom. Um, I always understood the how to go back to what Kanisa said earlier about what the magical Negro trope does in objectifying black people. So I always realized um, how white people could enjoy the fruits of black labor. 
and, you know, just disregard the creator as machinery and not see a humanity there, not have any feeling toward um, the producers of these great works. I remember my first music teacher, he was a bass player, played with Miles Davis and all these people played jazz. And he talked about, you know, playing in restaurants where they have to play behind a curtain. And it was like the white people can come in and listen to, you know, these people play, but they don't want to see them and ruin their meal. So there's this history there and something I related to in Prince um, because of his awareness. There were certain things in songs that I heard this, even a song like Slave to the System that might, I don't know if that was officially released and I doubt if the state will <laughs> release it given the way they center whiteness um, in their narrative of Prince. But I remember he talks about a water, um, changing some water. Um, and this story my father used to always tell about a job he had where he and this other black guy were only people there in the mail room and they'd have to change these water bottles. And, I rem- and my father used to always say there's going to be a water bottle in your future one day and you have to decide how you're going to deal with it and so when I heard the lyrics to that song I was like wow these are like this is it touches on stories my father talked about with racism and I won't go into too much detail on the stories but hearing that and then reading his book where they talk about his father being the first black employee um, at the Honeywell place so again there were these spaces where I could relate and Prince's mother was just like two years or so younger than older than my parents. So those stories that I know he got um, were stories that I got as well. And there were things, again, like you said, Tanya, if you don't understand Black idioms and Black culture, if you separate this person from that, you don't know what you're seeing. And I think, Kanisa, you mentioned this in one of your, I think it was the Dear White People podcast, like if you don't know what you're looking for, you don't understand it. And I, you know, um, remember being at, uh, I think it was the One Night Alone tour uh, concert and Prince did Donny Hathaway's Someday We'll All Be Free. And the black people were singing along and snapping and the white people were like, which album is this on? And I was like, this is Donny Hathaway. And, or um, I remember one time, I, I don't remember if it was the Tamar show or some show and he was doing Love Changes and they were like, is this a new song? And we're like, this is Mother's Finest. And, you know, that's when I kind of started saying, wow, you know, it's great that he's got this cross section of fans. But I thought, wow, there's really a difference in the way we're coming to this man, you know, or the Prince.org, which I stopped, you know, visiting. There was a lot of racism there. And so I was becoming so aware of it. Um and Kanisa, I don't know if this is incendiary and you might want to cut this out, so I'll give a pause <laughs> for editing. But, you know, I remember the last time he was in Chicago and he did three nights and I went to all three and all the after shows. At, and at one of the after shows, and, you know, there's never a guarantee if Prince is going to play an after show. And there was this one after show the first night and Andy Allo was playing the show. And my friend and I were there, and I think my sister had gone to the washroom, so it's just my friend and I were standing there, and we're in a sea of white people. And I remember this one white woman yelled, you know, we want Prince. We don't want to see, you know, this B-I-T-C-H, but she said the... the, And she yelled it. She's like, we don't want to see this bee in her bushy hair. (gasps) 
And my friend and I, we're both natural. And after a a two-hour Prince concert, you know our hair was bushy. And we were just standing there looking. And, you know, we're in the sea of whiteness. And I think about the ways that Black people even have to navigate whiteness for our own safety, even though this is a Prince after show. We're in a sea of whiteness. And we just kind of looked. And people are like, yeah, that's right. Where Mm. it's Prince cheering. And I thought the, the level of comfort and privilege to just yell something like this at a concert with a black man on the stage. And I thought, you know, yeah, we have definitely come to this man for different reasons and in in different ways at, um, the, you know, when he passed and there was a tribute concert in October of 2016, remember, uh, we went to the Paisley Park tour like the day after, and we were sitting at this table with these white women who had like come from California and they were talking about how they loved Prince, but again, their kind of love stopped after the revolution kind of period. And they were talking to us about him and they're like, yeah, but they were telling us the concerts they went to and, and one of them was like, yeah, but I liked him when he was nasty, you know, I didn't like him when he had that stuff written on his face. And and these women had about like $500 of merchandise. They had gone to the show. They were talking about all this money they spent. And I was just thinking, wow, you know, so you that stuff that was written on his face, like this had this didn't resonate with you in any way. You just liked him, quote unquote, when he was nasty. And so, again, it just reiterated that objectification that goes on. And for me, is again, a testament to no, he didn't transcend. I understand what Tanya says about a yes and a no. And I totally agree because of the barriers he had to break down. But uh, again, to kind of come back to the conversation, that was just a little bit of a side of some of the experience of I've, experiences that I've had. Um, it shows, I remember after, at the 2004 Musicology at an after show where Prince was late getting there because it was like the whole other side, like from another city back into Chicago downtown. So we're all in, packed in the house of blues waiting and people are getting drunk. And I remember this white guy's like yelling, like, where's Prince? And they start chanting. And there's this almost this like ownership, like, you know, you come out on my time. I've paid my my money. And he's like, yeah, bring out the short, you know, half Italian guy. And I looked at him and I was like, who was that? You know, because at that point, even I didn't care. And he's like, Prince. And I'm like, Prince isn't half Italian, you know, and it's, but still in 2004, people needed that narrative to connect to him. So I think that, no, he didn't transcend. And I'll shut up in a second, but I did want to use his own words because I think a lot of times there is a, a a true intention to ignore Prince's own words that he gave us about his understanding of race um, or to flash back to like 1984, 85, 86 to try to find some ambiguous statement on race. But in The Beautiful Ones, uh, I love where uh, Dan Pippenbring says, first and foremost, the book would allow him to seize the narrative of his own life. Once he said he'd seen a former employee of his on TV saying she thought it was her God-given duty to preserve and protect the unreleased material in his vault. Prince said, now that sounds like someone I should call the police on. How is that not racist? People were always casting him and all black artists in a helpless role as if we were 
incapable of managing ourselves, he said, I still have to brush my own teeth. And he was very aware of this idea of white people kind of still casting him in this role of being inferior and needing him to, to tell his story and direct him, whereas he was so much aware of that and in control of his own life. And I think a lot of, to me, what we have seen post-2016 kind of substantiates this idea that Prince had no vision of his own or he had a vision that needed white people to help him usher it into being. And so I think it's important to note that those are all implications of the fact that, no, he didn't really transcend uh, racial bias, no matter how great or talented or brilliant he was, he was still cast in this space of being inferior um, and in need of white assistance. So that's probably it. I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> I'll end my rant there. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we could spend a lot of time on that because... I mean, well, let's just combine the next two questions because it kind of speaks to this. The narrative of Prince has been so dominated by non-Black voices and why and, and how does this impact his legacy and then how the narrative of Prince's legacy has changed pre and post his passing because there's a lot more information available now about Prince as more people are speaking and writing their books and things like that than there was before. And there's also the benefit of technology. Um, When people have more access to technology, they can get information out there for people to pick up. But there's still... um, how how do we market prints now or how what is the best way to get people to even pay attention to like the new things that are coming out like the sign in the times box set and this is something i was talking i think to harold pride about the other day and i was like i i'm annoyed about um some of the stuff that's come out around it because there's just this huge susanna melvoin wendy and lisa and this revolution oriented story around that album when historically because of course i was only two when it came out sorry for the aunties who feel some way about that but what I remember most about that time when I was really young of the stuff that came out of that album was like Adore and how that was a huge song and it was on the radio, on black radio all the time or how the whole point of Sign of the Times was him to kind of um, come back to the black community after the revolution time and um, his band was mostly people of color besides like two people or <laughs> it's like uh, just it was just a different time. It was time for new things and not the old. And it kind of irritated me that the story was more about the old instead of the new. And um, also part of that being, I was just like, I understand that, and it's tricky because even Prince himself had trouble sometimes marketing himself later. Like all of his tours after One Night Alone were legacy tours. He was doing the hits. It wasn't the new stuff anymore. Or if there was a new stuff, it was maybe two or three songs that were part of the set list. And that annoyed me. And that's why I don't prefer the arena shows because it's like, I want to hear what you're doing now. I can always go back and listen to what you've done before. And so when we're trying to promote Prince now, it's like, how do we get people interested if they've missed it before without centering whiteness? But also knowing the black people who had this stuff or who are fans throughout this time already have all these albums so they may not necessarily buy it again but how do you present it in a way that would help them or get them to buy things again because at the end of the day it's about money making sure there's money for the estate making sure there's money 100 years from now when we're not here anymore so it's it's i guess the question is um and especially knowing how racist all the media is the industry is it's like how do we present prints in a package, and I hate to kind of commodify him that way, but how do we present his legacy in a package that people will pay attention to without erasing his culture that he came from and still centering that message of his blackness? 
and anyone, <laughs> if anyone has any thoughts on that. I mean, it's a tough one. And I say that because as someone who worked in the music industry, I was not to when Son of the Times came out, I was older. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually worked in radio when the record came out. And I literally remember the day that I got it and listened to it for the first time. And, um, you know, it's it's an extraordinary work in so many different ways that um, we've you know, so many people have covered. I think to answer your question, though, um, I think what you're doing, obviously, is something that is bringing Prince to a new generation. And I'm always kind of fascinated by how younger people have come to embrace Prince. When I was at Celebration, I met a woman, um, I might as well say her name, I'll give her some props on here, named uh, Luz Carlita, who's a young Prince fan. She's like 20 or 21 years old. And I'm like, well, how did you how did you get to, to how do you find Prince? How do the younger fans find him? And I think it's through podcasts like yours and through people being engaged through Instagram and in social media and, you know, Facebook and all these different accounts that keep his memory alive. And, and, and also there are people who are curious or become curious about his work because they wonder why people are so attached to this guy who's, as you as you said, was a legacy artist when he passed, was an older artist and who, you know, was past his not musical prime, but certainly his commercial prime. But yet and still before he Past, he was on a concert tour that was sold out and still very much of the pop lexicon. So to market him in the music business, I think he's going to, I think one, as I said, podcasts like this and, and the community that remains around Prince that is so strong with the things that D'Angela is doing, the things that everyone here is doing, um, whether it's books or whether it's study and whether it's scholarship. And, you know, we as African, as the African-Americans who are part of that community have to continue to, uh, push to have our contributions to his career as well as his contributions um, exposed. And, and, And we're doing that more so than the estate is doing, more so than any of the commercial properties are doing. We are those people. And and I didn't originate that. Someone said that somewhere along the line. And I thought that's, you know, we're waiting. Everyone's like, what's the estate going to do? What are they going to put out? And what are they going to say? And but we're doing that. Mm-hmm. And if we continue that, then the community continues to uplift and amplify his work, then I think it's good because the work is always going to continue to speak for itself. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know who marketed Beethoven or, you know, (laughs) or any of those guys from Wagner or any of them, but somebody recognized and they, you know, a hundred some years or a couple hundred years later, we're still talking about them and their accomplishments in music. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you distill it down to the music, Prince is going to speak for himself, Mm -hmm. you know, as he always did through the music. In terms of selling the estate, it's going to be the more commercial things that are going to happen as we've seen. That's just a reality. It's going to be people who existed in that very commercial and critical pop culture moment, the revolution, all those folks that are going to be the first voices that are going to have their say. But as people 
again, writing books that are not, you know, I, I, I always want to give Gabrielle Union the credit for writing a book, not about Prince, but for in her memoir, you're good. We're going to need more wine. There is this chapter that I think has been overlooked by a lot of people about Prince and his importance to other black artists and creatives by simply bringing them together through the parties that he used to do and putting them in a room. And, you know, that's kind of what we're doing to keep his legacy going. We're, we're having these events, we're putting people together in rooms and we're talking about him. And then we're, we're pushing that out into the world. And that is what continues his legacy. That is what, you know, whether it's the aunties and conversing with the young people and and talking about what our experience was with him as a living artist um, and the the community, black, white, the, the people who get it, the people sometimes who don't get it, just continuing, you know, it's four years later. And we are still talking about this man. We're still talking about his legacy. We're still celebrating his music. We're still collecting and we're interested and we want to know the next release and all of that. And I just think is that it, it, it's like as it just continues to trickle forth and, and flow and go out into the world, it'll continue. And what they do commercially, okay, but we're not going to we're not going to let him be and I hate to say it, Jimi Hendrix, you know what I'm saying? We're not going to let that happen because our voices are much more amplified now. We're not going to let it be ignored that Prince loved women, black, white, Puerto Rican, all kinds. He, he We're not going to say, we're not going to let it happen that the black musicians that contributed to his career go ignored. We're not going to let that happen. So I think that's part of the answer. The, the commercialization, the commodification of any African-American artist, that's always going to be what it is. But in terms of the memories and in terms of the community, in terms of all those things that keep him alive, we're going we're gonna to be at the forefront of that. We don't even have to worry about everything else that goes on because we're, we're always going to be at the forefront of that. Amen. Any other testimonies? Yeah, um, I Tanya really said it all, <laughs> but um, yeah, just more black voices. And I think um, something that's been weird, I would say, as a black person <laughs> in the fandom, you know, that is, I guess, largely white. Or I mean, there are just like a large amount of white Prince fans. I think sometimes non-black people feel like if they know a little bit about black culture that they can talk about it and that's enough and maybe mm. they don't need to include any black voices like one thing that comes to mind to me I remember a fan a, a white fan um talking to me about opioids and um how doctors you know prescribe don't you know prescribe pain medication based on um perceptions about the top black people's tolerance of pain and and it was just like she was like you do realize that you do realize that right and I'm like yeah I'm black <laughs> so I think <laughs> I think there's a lot of that going on which is which is kind of interesting uh but I will also say too that um I wonder I, I just wish I knew more about what's going on with with black people who worked with Prince and like if the estate does something or if, you know, 
selecting people to interview, how people get selected? Like, are they really reaching out to people? Um, how, how big of a role does money play in that? Like, I just wish I knew more about that, but I don't, cause I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not there when these negotiations go down. Uh, but, but yeah, just like Tanya said, just more black voices and hopefully more black people who worked with him uh, continue to tell their stories. I just wanted to say that Tanya, yeah, you really dropped the mic on that. I agree wholeheartedly. And Erica, what you said also is so true. The, um, you know, the educator in me always thinks about documents and artifacts. And uh, unfortunately, this idea that some people think that some things are more official than others. And this idea that when the estate is releasing, um, I didn't buy the 1999 deluxe reissue. Uh, one of my the reasons why I didn't was I, the fact that there, I, I don't believe I saw any black contributors to the liner notes in the book that was included. And so for me, that was just a conscious decision not to support that uh, because I was, you know, really appalled by the fact that there was not a conversation or a, I don't know if there were attempts or conversations, but I thought surely someone who understands the magnitude of 1999 uh, in its role at that triple threat tour when it started, Prince was not on MTV yet. You know, he was going out, you know, headlining this tour with the time and Vanity Six. And this was I mean, this was black radio. This was the black audience. You know, MTV came along toward the end of 82. But that tour was already going. And yeah, the second leg now after the MTV wave and there's more white people. So I just found it offensive to Prince's legacy first and foremost, but then also to the black fan base. You know, that time, uh, D'Angela Duff, who, you know, curates amazing Prince events, uh, she pointed out the, the exclusion of Vanity Six and the time from that box set. And so then to fast forward to now the sign of the times, the luck said, and, you know, the exclusion of Madhouse, you know, this instrumental work where, you know, he charted on the black um, uh, charts with that Madhouse uh, release and uh, Grown Folks Music podcast had two awesome podcasts a couple of years ago or a year or so ago about the Madhouse albums. And so, again, when I got this one and I, I read the liner notes and then I started to look at what songs were included, I thought, gosh, here we go again. You know, here's the opportunity to include, acknowledge document these black contributors to Prince's work and you're reaching back to the past. I'm reading, uh, I think, Andrea Swenson's piece. I, no disrespect to her, but I called it a love letter to Susanna Melvoin. I thought, what does this have to do with Sign of the Times? There's like three or four paragraphs on the last page of her piece about the new band, and that's kind of it. You know, they're kind of parenthetical comments about Mika, oh, he joined the you know, around the parade tour. It's just an afterthought, Black people being an afterthought in their own narrative. So it's, you know, again, this kind of green book idea of the Black people sitting in the back seat with the white people driving the car. So 
Um, that's all problematic for me. And it does make me question who's at the table, you know, with the estate and whose voices are being heard. I get that because we live in a racist society, you know, where systemic racism is everywhere. The reality is that, as Tanya pointed out, white people do need to see themselves to spend money and to connect if we come back to identity and identity politics i get that so then the question becomes how do you connect but then do that without uh, negating the contributions and presence of other people there's room at the table for everybody because Prince set the table and he invited the guests to the table. So how do we only look at one side of the table? How do we only serve one side of the table and ignore the rest or just give them the scraps? So that becomes a larger question for me that, you know, I think calls for deeper analysis and interrogation of the estate. You know, there's a way to acknowledge the completeness of his work, which includes acknowledging all of the voices that he invited to contribute to it. Uh, last week in at the um, Sign of the Times Deluxe Celebration um, that D'Angela hosted, I remember someone in the chat asked, well, where was Kat? And someone said, well, maybe she didn't play nice with the estate. And I responded, it's not about her playing nice with the estate. If they have people who they're employing as researchers, they don't even need to talk to Kat to do the research to properly document her contribution to Sign of the Times. They don't have to talk to Miko or Levi or Dale Alexander or Manisa Leitner. Now people have interviewed these people. People outside of the estate can somehow find these people and interview them and amplify their voices. So again, the question becomes, what's the mission statement here? What's the purpose? You know, is this really about Prince? Or what is it really about here? If we situate it in the larger context of white supremacy and systemic racism, here we are again seeing, you know, I love what Tanya said about, you know, seeing him, Jimi Hendrix, you know, and I'm like, hey, you guys are not going to one love him. This is not going to be a Bob Marley. I always joke, hey, you guys can't have Prince. Like, it's not, not on my watch. <laughs> and thankfully, there are so many people out here who are willing to do do the work, uh, to, to quote our dear brother, who are willing to do the work. And I think, honestly, that Prince would be very proud of the independent people who are doing this. You know, as he said, he's got an army that's three million strong. You know, the idea that there are so many people who were indeed followers, who were influenced by him and who are like, hey, you know what? We got this. We don't have to wait on you all. So when someone who has the open mind and the desire to know his complete story goes and does the research. If they're a Google scholar, as you say, Kanisa, yeah. <laughs> someone who researches, they'll see all of this work out here. So I think it's so important that we're not just, you know, as they say, and, you know, don't talk about it, be about it, that, you know, we we're talking about it, but we're also about the serious, you know, scholarship and documentation and acknowledgement of the totality, the completeness, the complexities, the contradictions all of that that are part of this man's work and not reducing him to just what makes us comfortable or brings back great memories for us. So. Yeah, I I do want to acknowledge at least um, when One Night Alone came out, <laughs> when that whole 
uh, there was a podcast for that as well. And Erica and I were able to participate on the official podcast to speak as fans. So what was I guess the thing that's confusing to me, because Andrea did both of those, and there's such a different message for Sign the Times and then One Night Alone, because she also interviewed like Najee and other black people who were around during that time. So it's like, it's a question of what was the direction she was given for Sign the Times versus that album? If that one was done right, and and it was coming out at a tricky time because there was a lot I think um, the Minneapolis stuff was happening right then and they were delaying it because of so much turmoil going on it's like do you really want to promote a Prince thing in the middle of it and I was kind of thinking like yeah especially given what that album was about how it was about blackness and how it was about agency of black people and how it was about um, family names like songs like that that were very important that were speaking directly to what was happening at the time but it's just very interesting how they pick and choose um, when to bring us in. And I was, again, talking to Harold about this. I was like, I don't want the black voices who are involved in promoting Prince to be like their affirmative action. Oh, yeah. And let's get the black take. There's one essay checkbox. We did the diversity thing, you know, because we're talking about a black man. And it's weird to see the, the promotion around it not include black people talking about someone from their culture. It's like from the outside of what they think. And, and I guess it's important for people to be included who were there but it's also you're still getting even if you were there and you had a conversation with prince about what this song was about he probably told something else to sheila he sold something else to Manisa, he told something else to whoever else he was dating at the time who were all there too so it's it's tricky to see like if if you're coming down to documentation of a time because a podcast is different than a book that will be here that's a, a physical thing it's really important to include the voices all the voices or some aspect of everyone who was there and not just like the people who happen to be available or people who will do it for free like you were saying Camila or you know things like that but to move on to the next question I saw a picture of I think it was Prince Cat and Sheila from Love Sexy Times on Facebook it's like on the African American photos group in Facebook and somebody made a comment that Prince didn't support or like black women and I was like oh actually he did and because I had done a thing on Twitter a thread on Twitter like last year going through Prince's support of black women from the very beginning talking about like Aretha or like um, Tamar or um, uh, Nona Gay like all these women that I had like 35 women that I had in my thread and so I was like oh hey here's a thread that you might want to check out it's about Prince's support of black women and he called me like uh, I think I don't even want to say what he called me. He called me like, I think maybe the C word or something just because I, you know, challenged his view on what Prince thought about black women. And again, it's such a common trope once again, because if you, if you didn't know or didn't follow him to know that he featured cat in two main tours as the main character, a black woman with kind of natural hair even, or even having like Nona Gay having her whole, movie the beautiful experience focused on her or just like throughout his career there were black people he featured there were black women he dated and if you don't know that you you can think that but it's so easy i think camila you've talked about this in your talks for why is it so easy for people to believe that so i wanted to talk a little bit about that like how do you feel about the projection of colorism and proximity to whiteness as it relates to prince's rumored preferences for certain types of women um and anyone can jump in there i know camila you're gonna like okay let's go (laughs) but go ahead 
Well, I was actually going. <laughs> I was actually going to let someone else go first, but I will say, you know, I won't go over, you know, my um, presentations or the the paper that I wrote about this. But I will say, I was compelled to do that because this is a a narrative that has dogged Prince, you know, his entire career, really, and now, you know, since 2016. And there are so many layers to it. And in the paper that I wrote, I really tried to get into that because it, it's not, I don't think, as black and white as people try to make it, people both black and white. There's so many um, nuances to it. The The question of colorism itself has so many nuances to it. Uh, racism, it has so many nuances to it. But I, I'm going to try to streamline my response uh, to connect to this, to come back to the our central theme here of the magical Negro and uh, sociologist Margaret Hunter, who I, I quote a lot because she gave us this great analogy of the beauty cue and women's value, you know, in society having um, real life consequences direct directly linked to that beauty cue that sets whiteness at the front of the line and um, blackness at the back of the line. And so proximity to whiteness increases the value uh, of women based on, on their beauty. And, and when we look at the magical Negro trope, there is this idea you know, in society that if you're the magical Negro who's so exceptional that you can quote unquote transcend race because we never talk about white people transcending race. No one ever says, oh, George Michael, he transcended race and was like the most popular white artist on the black charts because whiteness isn't something to transcend. You know, it's non-whiteness is what should be transcended. So if you're able to transcend, you know, the lowly depths of blackness and (laughs) to be accepted in this white space, then quite naturally you would want to select your partners from the front of the beauty queue. And I think a lot of that has influenced the approach to which women in Prince's life romantically alleged or confirmed and professionally that the media and a lot of his fan base choose to focus on and amplify. And, you know, Prince did his own, you know, damage in this area in terms of choices that he made. I, one of the things I point out is that when you look, you, I could always tell when Prince was going for kind of a mainstream crossover audience by the women he selected for those projects. Like, say, after, you know, Graffiti Bridge and and the negative criticism of that, then he comes back around with Diamonds and Pearls. And it's like, okay, this is going to be a mainstream crossover project. Let me get two white girl dancers, you know? And so there's that thing. And, you know, you see that again, this kind of push and pull throughout his career because he understands racism and white supremacy. He understands how it works. And it's like the band is all black. 
how do I bring white people into this? Okay, I'll get white dancers or I'll put, you know, a bunch of white women in the cream video or something like that, because then there's that connection there. One of the things with Sign of the Times is that, you know, you don't have that. And again, coming back to this deluxe set, so it's because there that's not there. We don't want to focus on Sheila or Kat or Bonnie or Manisa Leitner in the Madhouse set or even Jill Jones, who was still, you know, around. So let's talk about Susanna lovingly decorating a place she was asked to leave after a couple of months. So there's this idea of, okay, let's just focus on what maintains the beauty cue, what upholds white supremacist kind of hegemonic beauty ideals and there's the expectation, like I said, that if you're at the front, at the top of the line, if you ascend from blackness, your choices will come from the front of that beauty cue. So even it's like you see Bob Marley, whenever there are documentaries about Bob Marley, there's this focus on Cindy Breakspear. Now, he had children with about eight different women. Most of them were darker skinned black women. But, you know, you've got Cindy Breakspear, who's this mixed race woman. And I've seen her talked about in documentaries and Rita, his wife, not even mentioned, or the African woman he was dating at the same time as Cindy. The first time I ever saw her was in the Marley documentary. And so that's intentional. It's Jimi Hendrix. We don't hear about Fame Pridgen, who was, he was, he dated on and off from like 1963 to 1970 until his death. But when we see movies, it's Jimi Hendrix in Ireland with a white woman. This, you know, it's very intentional because it maintains white supremacy. Uh, and it has deleterious effects on the self-esteem of black women who were supporting these men. And um, it's something that definitely needs to be explored. And like I said, I'm going to stop myself <laughs> because I can go on and on about this. But it is something I know it makes people uncomfortable to talk about it. But it's something that needs to be talked about because I see it over and over again in magazine articles. Even when the Prince book came out, you know, he talked so much about the the black girls who he was dating when he's coming up and the influence they had on his music directly. And I remember reading a few reviews of the book and they're like, oh, his first kiss was, was with a white girl who looked like Elizabeth Taylor. I read that in about three or four different interviews. And I said, wow, he talked about this girl, Debbie, he ta- who taught him how black women listen to R&B music and, and soul music and ballads. He talked about the girl, girl Kari, who influenced him and still influenced music, he said, to this day at that point. He talked about Marcy, the girl who he talked about in her exploration. We see her picture with her little cute jumps suit and the afro he's talking about the sister and what stacks he's like there's nothing been there's never been anything recorded that's colder than that sister dancing in her sizzler and it's this beautiful dark skin woman because i know what stacks i was like oh he was talking about that dark skin sister in the sizzler you know there's none of that that's intentional so we're going to ignore five or six black women that girls and just talk about the little white girl when he was in first grade. You know, it's all intentional. And so I think deeper exploration of that is needed. And again, that was why I found the promotion of the Sign of the Times um, box set deluxe release and the booklet very problematic because it's again this idea of just kind of effacing black women from Prince's narrative to serve a purpose. Um, And yeah, that needs to be questioned. So 
and rant. No, so two things. First, shout out to Janice Gay, because same thing going on with Marvin Gay. Uh, no love for Anna Gordy Gay. It's all about Janice. But other thing, I just have a really quick question for the aunties. Before, or back in the day when Susanna was, quote, engaged to Prince, did you guys know that back then? No. <laughs> The only person that we thought about was Vanity. I'm here to tell you. The, right, me too. Susanna Melvoin's um, uh, uh, relationship with Prince, I don't even remember reading or hearing about it. It was all about Prince and Vanity back in the 80s. Even though their relationship was short-lived, it was, I mean, I, speaking for myself, you got to remember they did the Rolling Stone cover together. And that Rolling Stone cover was something because it was so much beauty Mm -hmm. (laughs) between the two of them. And then she had, I mean, you got to think about this was the 80s. It's not like it is now when sex and you can do, you know, WAP and that's a song and it's on the radio and everyone's like into it and black women are sex positive. No, this was the 80s when to have a black couple First of all, on the cover of Rolling Stone and have them show sexuality, you know, those probably when I think of two iconic Rolling Stone covers, I think of Prince of Vanity and I think of Janet with her man's hands over her breast because those were like moments, you know, in that time. So when you thought about in the 80s, you thought about Minneapolis as this magical place where Prince, you know, was making this music and the whole community in Minneapolis was making music. And then, you know, here's Vanity, who's this beautiful, glamorous, fabulous woman. And, you know, they made uh, Nasty Girl, which, come on, if you came up in the 80s, Nasty Girl was your anthem any way you look at it. You know, they're walking around like, I, I think... You cannot think of Prince in the 80s without thinking about Vanity. They were like just one of those hot couples, the way that is so advanced now on social media. Like if you just think about whatever couple of the moment that's the great couple, this was this was Prince and Vanity. And so Susanna, like when did you know, Wendy was part of the revolution and we knew her and then she had a sister that was a twin. But I just don't remember it being this much conversation about Susanna until after Prince passed. I mean, Susanna talks more about Prince than her own ex-husband, who is also an amazing guitarist. So, I mean, he's an ex-husband, but, you know, is father of her kids. So kind of <laughs> interesting. But, you know, and Prince himself said in the in the uh, interview that he did with Ebony with Miles Marshall Lewis when <laughs> I call it the I don't love them hoes interview. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to keep it real because he kind of said, I'm not thinking about women that I dealt with years ago. You know, he did. He said that in the interview. And I think that that's why he wanted it taken down because I think he thought he was a little bit too honest about a lot of different things and that that was going to potentially come back to haunt him or, you know, but. I think he told Miles because Miles has always told me that they're really cool and they've always had a good relationship. So I think he got, he probably said he got comfortable and he told Miles a little bit too much. Then it was like, you know what, brother, just let me rethink that. Mm -hmm. Cause that's really what he said. And, you know, as far as the black women, you know, look, Prince liked women. 
black, white, Puerto Rican, all colors, all backgrounds. Did we think that Prince liked light-skinned and biracial women? Yes. And I'm going to say, if there was a biracial woman out here that had a talent, Prince was going to find her. (laughs) There's just no question about that. You know, I'm looking at Snow Allegra. I'm like, how did he, how, how, where she come? How did Prince hook up with her? Like, I, you know, it's, it's amazing. But he was also a supporter of many artists. Mary J. Blige talks about him. Tony Braxton talks about him. Look at the women that he had in his bands. And even the two women that he married. Maite was a woman of color. And so is Manuela. You know, and I mean, I'm assuming that Prince took some secrets along with him. So we may not know every single person that he slept with or was interested in or liked or whatever. But he also liked Chaka and he liked Patrice Russian. And, you know, it is unfortunate that there that as black men, as some as it happens with some black men, the further the, the, the more famous that they get, the lighter their women get even if they still like black women or date black women. That's whatever you want to call it, a function of of colorism, a function of, uh, you know, be, what images of beauty that we haven't quite gotten over. But that was not something that was out of the pale, pale to, to say. Um, that was not something that was unusual <laughs> In that time period, Prince grew up in Minneapolis, surrounded by white folks, even though he grew up in black neighborhoods. So him getting out there and meeting women from all over the place and falling in love with them and messing around with them or using them as muses or whatever it was. But, you know, he he dated around and he was a rock star and he did his thing. But when you look at a video like The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, not only did he not only have just white women in there, he had older women. He had Marva Collins in there. He had women from all kinds of different... Uh, backgrounds and and who were doing different things. So you have to think about what that meant too when you see a video like that. And I just think, you know, Prince likes, Prince probably was, you know, falling for some of the stuff that some black men fall for. I get rich, famous, and all these women come at me and maybe I like a hue a little lighter sometimes. But if you see in Prince's own words, in his own contributions to his legacy and in, in, in memory, in, the, in a memoir that was incomplete, when he talked about all these black women from his mother to the Marcy, who I just love because Marcy's, I was like, where is Marcy now? Marcy is like, yes, Prince. <laughs> Marcy is celebrating that she got included in that book because if I was Marcy, I would be. You know that he was very much so influenced by these Black women who were around him when he was young and how he was still talking about this as a 50-plus-year-old man. He wasn't in there like it was Carmen Electra. And, you know, who knows what he would have said had he had a chance to really fulfill and complete the book, but you can't look at Prince's entire career and life and not see that he advocated for, was friendly with, counseled, encouraged, and loved on some black women. You know, and again, that that's the when Essence put out 
their special edition after Prince passed because the, the editor of Essence at that time, whose name escapes me completely, um, was a Prince fan, apparently. And they put out this special edition uh, and they told the stories of Prince through the eyes of Black women. And so you saw these various Black women that he worked with that you had no idea that he ever worked with. Like the woman from Ebony, um, Oh, I can't remember her name either. Lord have mercy. But and you see, this is what happens when you're an auntie. You can't remember these details. But <laughs> the, the, the special edition itself really, really communicated that there were Black women that Prince loved on and encouraged. I mean, the story even of him uh, talking to the folks at MTV, I think about Ananda Lewis's contract and things like that that he has done uh, Tamar, not uh, Tamar Braxton, but Ashley Tamar Davis, talking about this year at an event that was, or last year at an event that was associated with celebration, how Prince encouraged her to direct a video. Prince working with Angie Stone, which I promise I don't remember that moment <laughs> when he was still here. I was like, wait, what did he my sunshine? Yeah. Stone, mm-hmm. um, you know, or even the story of Millennia, the group uh, that is on that um, song with Angie and Prince. And there are a group of young women from, I think, I always want to say Grand Rapids, Michigan. But in, in any case, uh, the girl group that were sisters, I believe, who went to Paisley Park like young and naive and were like, ah, and knocked on the door and basically said, we're here to audition for Prince. And Prince was like, let him in. You know, Mm -hmm. think about that. So I can't, and it's just countless people that I think, the stories that we may not all know that he loved on, again, encouraged, uplifted, showcased Black women. So we, you know, you can't cut them out of the picture. In terms of his romantic life, I mean, my man was a rock star. He was doing his thing. (laughs) He was all over the place. Um, And, you know, he liked talented women. And maybe sometimes they were more of what we would consider uh, the prevailing idea of beauty at the time but I don't know that we know everything about Prince's personal life when the parts that we do know may not have been experienced by him the same or, or even the women the same way that they've been documented, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's give him, you know, if we're going to look at one part of that, let's look at it in its entirety. But no, in the eighties, it was all about vanity, baby. Look, <laughs> <laughs> that was the girlfriend. Okay. Uh, Erica, did you have a comment on this? Yeah, uh, Tanya and Camila, you guys, you ladies are awesome. <laughs> the only, <laughs> the only thing I'll add is um, we need to give Prince room to evolve when we talk about him, and mm-hmm. I think this goes back to the magical Negro thing. I think we look at him as this sort of guru, and we project something on him, and then we don't, we box him in, and um, he's subject to the same impact of white supremacy as all of us. And, uh, you know, Kanisa, you and I talk about this, but like many of us, he went through his own Afrocentric, a.k.a. Hotep phase in the 90s. If you look at his lyrics or some of the writers he references or some of the conspiracy theories he references, just like your average Black person <laughs> around the way, Prince is doing the same thing. So I think we need to to give him space to mature. 
And that's all I'll say on that. I just wanted to add, um, because Tanya responded beautifully, and I loved, I'm using that, Erica, the whole tap phase. But I I just wanted to, uh, being an auntie also, just kind of co-sign what Erica, uh, I'm sorry, what Tanya said, because that's a great question. Kanisa, I had no idea that Prince was with Susanna. And I, you know, was buying every magazine with Prince at the time and following and like Tanya said, it was all about Prince and Vanity. Even after Purple Rain, people were still wondering when Prince and Vanity were going to get back together. And, you know, we assumed that, you know, he maybe he's moved on with Sheila E. We assumed that maybe they were a couple and or maybe he had something going on with Kat. But during that time, I just don't remember any conversation about Prince and Susanna Melvoin. She was there. She was Wendy's sister. She was singing on stage, but he had more interaction with Sheila E when she would come out on stage. So it just never was a thought in my head or anyone I knew of at the time that he was with Susanna Melvoin. But it seems that there hasn't been a missed opportunity to spotlight that relationship, you know, post 2016. But yeah, I just wanted to add that just as a a second view of someone who lived during that time that no, there just wasn't a thought that um, Prince was with Susanna Melvoin like that at at that time. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, thank you for that. Because I I didn't, I mean, no shade, because I remember going to the family, there's like an Eftelux show at the Dakota, like the first year celebration. I was like, I enjoy this music. But I was also like, I don't get why there's such a huge um, focus on her. And I was like, maybe I don't get it because I wasn't around then. Like even during her panel at actual celebration, they were she was going on and on. I'm like, I don't understand. <laughs> or maybe I'm missing it. But I, I just wanted to clarify or get some clarification there. Um, but let me keep going because... Can I just also say that there are two women that I always say just do not get the recognition, um, and that is uh, Nona Gay, mm-hmm. who was publicly with, made a record with, and you know even Jan Gay I've met, and she talked about just her history of dating and, and dealing with musicians, and she gave me a little insight onto um, Prince and Nona dating. Nona has had some personal struggles. Um, I don't know that people know that. Um, that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons why you don't, her career trajectory, um, didn't continue. And I think because of that, even though she did speak eloquently, eloquently after he passed, that that's one of the reasons why she has been, uh, cut out of his story some. And, um, Robin Power, who yes <laughs> Robin is a very interesting personality <laughs> um but in that era I mean just you know she's Nona and Robin gorgeous women and you know Robin too has had her history with Prince which she will she has discussed at length <laughs> <laughs> and in fascinating detail I must say um, but, you know, they were there and they were part of his history and whether or not they were the most known or the most important, you know, we can only ask Prince that. But certainly they were women that he dated and were known 
uh, about. And in particular, it was Nona because he did something with her so publicly. And then Robin was in Graffiti Bridge. So I think we can say that they should be considered a part of of, of his roster. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll stop there. Coming up next on Mies to the Pharaoh, we dive specifically into the magic of Prince and consider the context of how his legacy parallels Black cultural norms. We've been floating this country on credit for centuries, yo. And we're done watching and waiting while this invention called whiteness uses and abuses us, burying black people out of sight and out of mind while extracting our culture, our dollars, our entertainment like oil, black gold, ghettoizing and demeaning our creations, then stealing them, gentrifying our genius, and then trying us on like costumes before discarding our bodies like rinds of strange fruit. The thing is though, the thing is that just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. Thank you. 